Welcome to Blue Line, the podcast hosted by Blue Line, Canada's only independent national magazine for law enforcement. You've tuned in to hear compelling conversations on hot topics and trends with law enforcement professionals and personalities from across Canada. This episode is brought to you by Patriot One Technologies, whose mission is to deliver innovative threat detection and counterterrorism solutions for safer communities. Patriot One's PatScan multi-sensor covert threat detection platform identifies and reports weapons and threats wherever required, from car park to building approach, from employee and public entryways to inside facilities. Learn more at PatriotOneTech.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Blue Line, the podcast. I'm Renee Franker, the editor of Blue Line magazine. Thanks for tuning in. We've been working hard to bring you COVID-19 coverage specific to you as law enforcement officers. We know you've been attending an array of challenging calls. And if one of those calls has been related to people panicking and hoarding supplies, this is a podcast episode for you. We've all heard about and we've all seen the empty store shelves. Luckily, it's getting better. I know last time I was in No Frills, I was able to get almost everything I needed. But if we look not too far back, just on March 30th, the Indonesian National Police issued orders to limit the purchase of noodles, rice, and other staple food items nationwide. And that was in hopes of curbing the hoarding and panic buying there. Meanwhile, here in Canada, just about a month ago, on April 1st, the city of Lethbridge was urging citizens against gas hoarding. According to Global News, the Fire Prevention Bureau said it had received reports of gas hoarding in the community and said that nobody should be storing more than 30 litres of fuel on their property. Others were stockpiling hand sanitizer, Lysol wipes, etc. So today we're chatting with social worker Elaine Birchall. She's going to provide us with some tips on handling calls you may be called to that involve stockpiling and hoarding. She says learning the criteria and how to assess a given situation will help you to avoid the unnecessary poor outcomes and improve compliance. A little more on Elaine now. Elaine spent her one-year work placement as a counselor within the Nepean Police Victim Crisis Unit while earning a Master's of Social Work. In this role, she was frequently asked to provide social work support by responding to community calls with detectives and constables, and she was later awarded two police commendations for the support she provided. Elaine is a hoarding behavior and intervention specialist, the director of virtual consulting, and the founder of the Canadian National Hoarding Coalition. She also provides training and best practices for treating hoarding disorder to professionals and organizations across North America. And last but not least, she is the co-author of Conquer the Clutter Strategies to Identify, Manage, and Overcome Hoarding. Elaine, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. Our pleasure. So first off, how are you doing with this health crisis? How's the social distancing going for you? Do you have toilet paper? (laughs) That's a funny story, Renee. (laughs) Oh, I have to hear it now. (laughs) First of all, like everyone else, it's wearing a bit thin. But, you know, that's when you kick over to the rational side rather than the emotional side. And you remind yourself there are good and and sensible reasons why this is a good investment of your time. It does, however, just to say that the normal baseline for most people, and I'm still continuing to do my counseling uh, virtually. So in fact, it's picked up. Got two calls from Texas the other day and one from uh, New Mexico. So just 
seeing the information on podcasts is bringing people to a threshold where they're prepared to admit that under this stress, it's a whole lot harder to maintain your commitment and to stay focused. It, people are feeling a little bit squirrely and a little bit cabin fever. Oh yeah, we're not, uh, we're not alone in that, that's for sure. So no, absolutely. I know many of our listeners, you know, know and they recognize hoarding um, as a distinct mental health disorder. Uh, but within this context of a global pandemic, I mean, what should first responders now keep in mind about those hoarding supplies? I think the first thing is that the normal population right now is experiencing the very same feelings of threat, of uh, deficiency or inadequacy doing without, somehow they will be deprived. That's a common experience with individuals who hoard. They live with that profoundly. They live with it chronically. So the average person right now is getting an experience of what, I mean, a small bite of what it's like. And so we all respond in certain ways that we're vulnerable. And those can be quite unique to us. But when resources are reduced. This even happens to mice, rats in a box, all right? They hoard, all right? Your body, when it senses that uh, you're not giving it enough calories when you go on unwise diets, hoards. And so it's a natural uh, inclination. However, when uh, that happens to um, enough of a degree over a long enough period of time. Some people will be tipped into behaviors or attitudes, mindsets that they were subclinically vulnerable to, but now they've been pushed over a threshold. So for law enforcement, because I remember going out on calls, and sometimes, you know, you'd come away feeling is the whole world gone crazy? But the thing to remember as police officers is that you're rarely being called out to people um, in situations where their life is going wonderfully. So you're already in an overload of stress and negativity. All right, so don't let that make you skeptical. Don't let that make you feel like somehow the world has taken a negative turn en masse. They haven't. People are just responding in their own way to things, beliefs, fears that they've always been vulnerable to. As a, as a hoarding behavior specialist, I kind of feel the pressure, the responsibility to walk the talk. So I don't hoard. And we ran out of toilet paper. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but one of the things that was also true that I really impress upon my clients is, and it's not a new age thing. It's a belief that I've come to after a lot of struggling and having to have it proved over and over to myself is the universe provides what you need, when you need it, in the order you need it, if you're awake and listening, and you send out the message of what you need. So we were down to one roll of toilet paper and we have five people in the house. So that was not a good situation when I just kind of sent out by uh, email to my email list. Does anybody have any extra toilet paper? We're down to one roll and the universe provided. 
and you know we'll be able to so on, on the neighbors who responded i happened to have ordered a case of wine um, in preparation never be without and uh, i went around and handed them left bottles of wine on their on their doorstep as a thank you for the toilet paper so you know we're not alone in this you're not going to run out of something that is desperately needed you have a connection you have a network and the police are such an important source of structure and leadership that relaying that message, assuring people, instead of having to respond to the negative behaviors people exhibit under fear. Very well said. And, and I love just how you touched on that connectivity part. And um, I had been reading in the Harvard Business Review, I think it was, a, a quote about, you know, this shared vulnerability is our solidarity and we're in this together. Absolutely. So. Yeah, beautiful. Well, well said. So, so that in mind, clearly, you know, not everyone who hoards has an issue. So, I mean, maybe chat with us a little bit more about um, how, you know, does, does someone who's only just started hoarding resources, like antibacterial wipes, let's say, since this outbreak, do they now have a disorder? Are they heading that direction? Is, is all hoarding the same, which we know it's not, but, but walk us through that. There are a few things I want to make clear in this opportunity. First of all, and thank you for it because it's timely. There are two types of hoarding behavior, all right? One is adaptive, all right? And that's what people did during the war, during the Great Depression, was nothing went to waste, but they used it, all right? They didn't hoard it and leave it and forget about it, and it was taking up space that they needed for other things, all right? Creating unsafe living conditions. And then there's maladaptive hoarding, and that's what we're talking about here. Now, the people under this crisis situation are reasonably, logically responding as adaptive hoarding. All that means is that you are buying in a greater excess than you would normally. Not you buy everything and deprive others, all right? And so the maladaptive hoarding, that becomes more acute and, and worse. So if officers are going out and it's apparent that there's a hoarded environment, I want them to realize that despite how positively or how um, perfectly people uh, present themselves as normal, if you're looking at significant enough hoarded environment, you're dealing with somebody who's living with a mental illness, all right, whether that's apparent to you or not, all right, and so they have a reduced ability to solve that. This is not about housekeeping at all. This is about people living with profound sense of some vulnerability and, and it's not all the same for every person who hoards. They have a unique combination of vulnerabilities that have piled up or collided as it were and has have created almost default reactions and often that's to over acquire um, and sometimes it's garbage. Some, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. It's about the having, and there's never enough. So one, one little snapshot after all of that that I'd like to offer officers is if you're going out and you see, you're witnessing a trip over, you're going you know, to respond to a call that uh, there's an excessive accumulation of anything, I want you to realize that the amount the volume of that is directly correlated with the void 
that person is trying to fill for different reasons. This is not about housekeeping. Very wise words and, and easy tidbits that officers can hold on to with the two types. Mm -hmm. And it's not about housekeeping, right? Mm -hmm. Easy mantra to have in your head if you're responding to these types of calls. Yeah, it's about the that. void. It's about the void. And they can't solve that void. They just need to be aware of it so that they can modulate their interaction with the person according to all the skills they already have. All right, that's, that's an easy assessment tool that they can use. Do no harm. So right along uh, the same vein then, if the call an officer is responding to is, is someone with hoarding disorder, are there some other common reasonable accommodations that an officer should know about that you want to touch on uh, here as well? Yes, there are. Um, I just want to read this one though, okay, because it's somewhat of a legal response. Um, a reasonable accommodation for police officers might just mean being aware that an abundance of caution might in this case, this specific case, be warranted. Because as I said, hoarding is not about housekeeping. It's about somebody, if there's enough functional impairment, all right, and they can't determine that, but they have to act as if, is my advice. Then they're dealing with somebody with a disability, all right? And no matter how articulately or apparently normal they present themselves, they are also entitled under the law to reasonable accommodation under human rights legislation. That might mean um, not being as quick to serve a charge if there is some middle ground, for instance, referring them to victim crisis might be a good alternative or some other support in the community with the ability to check back with them, give them that lead time to raise the level of importance for this being a situation, not accepting the situation, but raising the level of their awareness that this is the time for them to reach out for the help they have needed for a very long time. So turning a punitive action into an opportunity to kind of create an impetus for those people to get the help they've needed for a long time. Because the thing about hoarding, Renee, is no hoarder ever woke up and said, gee, I think I have enough. So no matter what situation you're coming in as an enforcement agent into, okay, to discover, no matter what that point is right now, given enough time, given more time, that is going to go on to create um, a crisis, a health and safety crisis, not just for the individual, but for the community, anybody living in close proximity to them, even if the accommodations are not attached. So this is a life cycle that expands. Right? There's no off switch. So this is an opportunity to really prompt somebody to make changes in their life. Wow, an opportunity. I like that. And, and if officers have that awareness uh, to, to look at it that way, also in a non-judgmental way, as you, you touched mm -hmm. on earlier, there can be opportunities that arise from this. So, And certainly with my experience going out with, I, I went, can't count the number of calls I went out on, uh, all, all manner of calls with detectives and, and constables, they have the skill already. That's why they do this job, all right? They have this mindset already. This is something that they were born to do. 
That's why they stay in these jobs, right? It's a calling. It's not a job. And so it's more that in the moment of discovery, just having a shortcut to a better understanding of what you're actually seeing and not, you know, as many people do, unwittingly uh, apply a different meaning that is not appropriate and not helpful to the person you're responding to that you're trying to get them to engage in some kind of compliance or to the own, your own job function. What type of other resources, and this might be a bit of a redundant question, but I'm going to throw it out there. What type of other resources are there to help officers deal effectively with the situation? Um, are there other people such as yourself that they can call? Um, do you have any, any other resources you'd like to direct them towards? So hoarding informed resources are in short supply. So I'm not going to count. There are other resources across Canada um, and the U.S., I'm not going to focus on that so much because um, the path to finding those is time consuming, okay, and fraught with disappointment. So if I could just give them something that is sure. Number one, I'm, hap I'm happy to be a resource and if no matter where across Canada you are, if you have that need uh, for somebody else, family included, could be your family, it could be you who's living with this as well. Nobody is exempt, all right? This is not a disorder that only happens to certain types of people. Uh, if we had time, I could give you the broad range of people that would surprise you, all right, who I've worked with. Not their identities, obviously, but just the nature of it. So I would be happy to be a resource. And I then from your uh, geographical location might be able to pass you on to one of the former members of the National Hoarding Coalition or a shortcut. The other thing is not to pitch the book, but uh, Conquer the Clutter uh, Strategies to Identify, Manage and Overcome Hoarding was expressly written. I've done this job for 19 years. And so when I see my last client on my last day, it's gonna give me peace of mind that or this is what I told myself, to have a resource out there that means if you don't have access to help or support or the right kind of support, or even if there, there are services available, you couldn't afford them anyway, or you're not ready um, to reach out, you're too ashamed. For individuals who hoard, for those who care about them, and for the professionals, including police officers, fire inspectors, firefighters, uh, psychiatrists, no matter what kind of support you're providing, this book is a handbook for practical, user-friendly, informed, helpful, not just information, but also strategies and tools to use. Um, and so I would uh, be happy to have them access the book um, and use it as a resource. Also, my website, hoarding.ca. I've set that up with an abundance of free resources, all right? And if all else fails, uh, people can email me at elaine.birchall at hoarding.ca. Perfect, and we'll make sure to include Elaine's uh, contact information on the website article connected to this episode as well. So take a look for that at the end of the article. All right, well, moving right along, um, it, it may be obvious to you, but uh, in these challenging times, you know, why do police officers need to know about this, especially now? People are under increased duress now. That's why the now. But 
the whole principle of policing is to, to protect people and um, uphold the law. And so officers are going to come across more people right now, whether they are adaptively hoarding, they're still under stress, and they will play out vulnerabilities that they have that may or may not be productive, all right? The second is maladaptive hoarding. These people are chronically under this stress, and now it's heightened. Now it's as though the universe proved to them that they were always right to overacquire and hoard and hold on to excessive numbers of things. That behavior may play out adaptively or maladaptively. Okay, these are the people they're going to who need your protection, and they're now at an increased vulnerability, um, and they may not present as vulnerable. Uh, that can be aggressive or it can be passive, but it's going to be what it is, and you're going to meet more than your fair share of them. The reason it's also important is that that subset that get mistaken for being messy or being poor housekeepers or pack rats or whatever other name you want to apply, they're also at increased risk of their own behavior. On top of that, if a police officer goes in and doesn't realize what they're looking at, then they fail to understand it's not normal law, it's human rights law that applies here. And so there needs to be a buffer to discover. And probably they're going to need some help from an outside party to help to assess what is the reasonable accommodation here. Because creating a hoarded environment and putting yourself and others at risk, that is not your right. And we can't support that because there's no end to it but just getting the help they need. And I'm happy to act as that resource in, through this crisis in the meantime um, and help them either be put in touch with people in their geographical area or just field the questions myself. Amazing. Thank you for that. And, and it's like you said, it impacts the entire community. So it's... Well, this is a crisis we pull together and there's no charge for that. Wonderful. All right. Well, well, let's move along. I, I want to chat a little bit more about um, your time working directly with police in Nepean. Uh, you know, when was that, first of all? It was uh, for one full year. I worked part-time, two and a half days per week. One was with the team during the week with the manager and the officer um, who was attached to the unit and the other team members, which was great. And was really, really fortunate to have that opportunity. That was just like one of life's blessings. And the other was alone on a Saturday. They weren't normally open on Saturday. So I did a 12 hour shift alone in the unit under indirect supervision by the manager, but direct supervision with the staff sergeant uh, under his direct, his or her direct supervision. Um, and that really gave me uh, an inside view of working in a paramilitary organization in a wonderfully supportive and productive way um, that it's not it's not the negative that some people portray it as at all. And I got to meet um, amazing people. I know everybody probably says that, but this is true. And I was given so many opportunities to learn um, and to contribute um, that social work, mental health piece. Amazing. And uh, I, I look back on it as just one of 
the great opportunities of my life. Fantastic. I don't want to put you on the spot. Do you have a particular memorable moment, though, or a specific anecdote that sticks out to you when you think back on those times? One of them was counseling an eight-year-old little girl who had been molested by an uncle. And uh, her parents very bravely brought this forward. They connected themselves and her separately and together for counseling and preparation for the legal proceedings, the court case. Um, and so I was able to support her and prepare her to be a witness at the, uh, at the court case and um, also to help her redefine justice, getting justice, because one of our fears was that you can't control the outcome, right? So you don't know whether the charges are going to be She's, he's going to be convicted or whether they're going to be dropped or there's going to be some uh, administrative problem and they're going to have to be abandoned. But helping her get justice. And I had wonderful support from my manager and from the police officers in helping me understand the system. And I was able to help her understand that the simple act of um, giving witness she defined her own, and she was able to do this even at eight, brave little girl. She was able to define what justice was for her. And justice was looking him eyeball to eyeball in the court in front of everybody and telling what happened and knowing that she knew, regardless of what happened later, that was another story. She knew the truth. And when she looked him eyeball to eyeball, he knew the truth. And that was justice because now it didn't matter whether everybody accepted what she said. She had given them the opportunity to know the truth, whether they were brave enough to pick it up and carry the ball um, and believe her or not. That's on them. It doesn't change the truth. And um, he was convicted. She did really, really well, and I'm very pleased that she came out of it a lot less traumatized than she would have been otherwise. And I heard from her many years later, just saying like, she was going through a new transition in her life, and she emailed me. Um, she found me, I don't know how, but she emailed me, and she wanted to tell me how we, the team, had made a big difference in her life at a time when it could have been really bad and that she carried that strength with her that it doesn't matter if you know you're telling the truth it doesn't matter whether anybody believes you or not your job is to tell the truth and to live by it other people that's on them wow oh that gives you goosebumps just thinking of that the whole first of all eight years old and oh i know to have brave. that self-awareness and that what wow just the bravery oh my goodness and yeah and then to the follow-up years later like oh man that's a beautiful thing so thank so you so I, I guess i want to pass on to the officers too they probably know this already but just to say it is that the good you do the compassion you show but sometimes compassion is about enforcing the law humanely. That changes lives. The pity is you only get to see people in a negative snippet of time. But I swear, I've got so many stories where that came back, that something I was part of, but not just because of me, but because of the work of the team I was working with, 
that that good does live on and you do change lives and you don't get to know it, but they live the benefit of your compassion and sometimes your strictness. Very true. And it, it's, um, it's beautiful to be able to share those stories as well, because they, like you said, they don't often get shared. They don't get to see the, you know, the last chapter. Exactly. Exactly. So we'll do our part to, to pass those on and, and, put that positivity out into the world, the full circle vibe of it. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you, what you're doing does have an impact. And lasts. And it lasts. Yeah. A lasting, lasting impact. impact. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Very powerful. Wonderful. It, Elaine, is there any other um, tips from working with police that you now use uh, in your work uh, overall or did working with police shape your your future work um anything you want to chat with us about uh, that mm-hmm. I, I yes it did it was a real advantage to have a very intense um, experience there were two things that really came back to me one didn't feel positive at the time but it is positive in the long haul and that was as a victim crisis social worker, um, you're often exposed to people who are in threatening and intimidating uh, situations. And sometimes, I certainly was, the brunt of the perpetrator. So they would, on, on more than a few occasions, they because I was on call on the Saturday, I was, I was in the unit on the Saturday, they would might call in and very subtly threaten me and intimidate me. And mostly that was about not providing service or resources to the person who was their victim, their designated victim. But it was personal as well. And so, you know, I was a student at the time. I was, was the onus was to make sure that as a student, I was following procedures accurately and that I was doing the right thing and being very accountable, particularly in such uh, a responsible organization as a police force. All right, you have to get it right the first time. You don't get redos. And so I felt that. Now, of course, I was nowhere near as vulnerable as the victim themselves, but I felt that. And I took that away, not as in allowing myself, I, I felt the intimidation. I felt the threat, it was real. Um, And realizing that gave me an insider view to some degree, not, it's not equal, but to some degree about what people who come to you with stories that nobody wants to believe, what they really are experiencing and the effort and the, the trust that it takes for them to divulge that to you, all right? It's trust, they're trusting you. It's like they're drowning and they reach out for a hand and you're the hand, police officers, you're the hand. Uh, In some small way, I was the hand. So it gave me an appreciation of what they're really experiencing and what that takes. And I've taken that away, not to live traumatized, but just to appreciate. And so what that helped me do as well, and the experience working at Nepean Police Victim Crisis was the responsibility, despite how well your life is going, what mood you're in, whether you're having the best or the worst day of your life, that when you approach a situation that you um, insist, you commit yourself to responding neutrally. Whatever the baggage is, we all have it, that stays in my car. And the moment I go through the door, 
I have to be in a neutral, receptive to the truth, whatever that is revealed, that's what my responsibility is. Not necessarily to solve, but to respond to. And that, I think it's a positive that I wouldn't have learned otherwise in such a profound way. Thank you for sharing that. It, it's given you another layer to, to draw on, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. yeah, sounds mm -hmm. like it. All right. Well, Elaine, we, we've come to the, the end of our enjoyable podcast episode with you. And I know if you've caught any of our previous episodes, um, you know, we eat, end each one with a, two fun questions just to change up the mood. So, okay. what is something your colleagues and longstanding maybe clients uh, might not know about you? Very few people know that my mother's nickname for me was Dennis. Dennis. For, for Dennis the Menace. <gasps> because I drove her crazy with the question, why? Yeah, but why? Yeah, but why? Because I would not, I was one of five children. So my experience right now with children is my heart goes out to your mom and I'm really sorry, but I never gave her a moment's peace with just the superficial answer. I would never settle for it. And she would pray when I would say to her, what would you like for Mother's Day? And she'd say, I'd like the chance to join a cloistered order. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to put Dennis the Menace in a, an asterisk beside your name now in my contact book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. It's what I want to be known for. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Thank you for sharing that funny story. Um, and then the second question then is, is, what's one thing, this is a hard one, warning you, what's one thing though that you uh, couldn't live without? Um, my family. I, family to me is everything. Um, chosen family as well as birth family. And we sustain one another. They're, they are my strength and they are my reason for doing so many things. And I rely on them. Beautiful. And, and now more than ever, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Even, for sure. the, even the ones we can't see, uh, you know, if we, we didn't know we missed them, we certainly do now. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us today virtually and safely uh, and providing our listeners with some valuable resources that, um, you know, they might not think about right away. It's one of those things that can fall through the cracks. So we appreciate you bringing it to the forefront. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Blue Line, the podcast. Make sure to check us out on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us under Annex Business Media, Podcast for Work. Also, check out the podcast tab on blueline.ca. Thank you to everyone listening, especially those out on the front lines, away from their families during these trying times, uh, protecting our communities and our vulnerable uh, citizens. Wash those hands. Remember, we're only in control of so much. Uh, it's all temporary. Don't give up and stay safe, everybody. This episode is brought to you by Patriot One Technologies, whose mission is to deliver innovative threat detection and counterterrorism solutions for safer communities. Patriot One's PatScan multi-sensor covert threat detection platform identifies and reports weapons and threats wherever required, from car park to building approach, from employee and public entryways to inside facilities. Learn more at PatriotOneTech.com. Thank you for joining Blue Line, the podcast hosted by Blue Line, Canada's only independent national magazine for law enforcement. 